only thing that can stop the terrible tax monster is a Republican. We can stop government squandering, overtaxing ways, and save our economy. Hey, what's going on, Army? It's my birthday, Sammy. Give me a beer, stick a candle in it, and I'll blow out my liver. And in Downers Grove, still another death suspected of being cyanide poisoning. It seems everybody is interested now in home computers. Introducing Diet Coke. Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! Rising up, back on the streets Did my time, took my chances Uh, Cliff, I think you're getting your Sylvester Stallone movies mixed up. We're covering Rambo, First Blood, not Rocky Three, which that song came from. Ah, what's the difference? They both came out in 1982, and both of them had Sylvester Stallone kicking ass. Yeah, that would be part of his uh, Hollywood shtick, kicking ass. Not to mention, the song that I was singing, we'll be covering later on in the show. Uh, yeah, it's a great song. Hey everyone, it's another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. Ken and I are a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. And in each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. As you heard in our opening montage, we're profiling the year 1982, and we'll be discussing three films in this show, Blade Runner, E.T. and Rambo First Blood. For television debuts, we'll be discussing Family Ties and Cheers. And for music, we're covering songs from John Mellencamp, Survivor, Grandmaster Flash, and an entire album by Michael Jackson. But let's first get to the most important events from 1982. Although it's certainly not the sexiest or most sensational news stories of 1982, AT&T, the world's largest telecommunication provider at that time, was forced to break up as a result of an antitrust lawsuit filed by the U.S. Justice Department back in 1974. AT&T split into seven separate regional bell operating companies known as Baby Bells, which would handle local phone services, AT&T retained control over its long-distance services and research arm called Bell Labs. The move led to increased competition and the eventual rise of new technologies and companies in the telecommunications sector. What do you mean that wasn't a sexy news story? That was super sexy, Ken. <laughs> wow. You like those baby bells, yes. don't you? <laughs> a nationwide panic struck the U.S. after it was discovered seven people in the Chicago area had died from Tylenol bottles that had been tampered with cyanide. Tylenol's parent company, Johnson & Johnson, issued a nationwide recall of over 31 million bottles. The case led to the establishment of new packaging regulations and prompted companies across industries to adopt tamper-proof packaging as a safety measure. And now none of us can get into any of our medications. Know, but thank God, because otherwise we'd be eating cyanide-laced pills. True. No suspect was ever charged or convicted of the poisonings, but a New York City man was convicted of extortion for sending a letter to Johnson & Johnson claiming responsibility for the deaths and demanding $1 million to stop them. 
Rather than naming a Man of the Year for their annual year-end issue, Time Magazine chose a Machine of the Year, the Personal Computer. In 1980, less than 70,000 personal computers were sold in the U.S. By the end of 1982, that number reached almost 3 million. Ten years later, in 1992, over 36 million personal computers were sold per year. And in announcing their decision, Time Magazine wrote, quote, There are some occasions when the most significant force in a year's news is not a single individual, but a process and a widespread recognition by a whole society that this process is changing the course of all other processes. There were three products released in 1982 that, for better or worse, transformed American society. Coca-Cola held the market share of diet sodas for decades with their Diet Cola brand, Tab. However, in 1982, Coca-Cola launched Diet Coke, the first new brand to use the Coca-Cola trademark since Coca-Cola's creation in 1886. Another diet beverage launched in 1982, Bud Light. Advertised as a light beer with 110 calories per can, Bud Light went on to become Anheuser-Busch's most popular product and the number one drunk beer for decades until 2023. And the third product debut in 1982 was the compact disc player. Sony was the first to launch their version of the Sony CDP-101 for the astounding price of $730. That's roughly $2,300 in today's money value. By 1992, only 10 years later, over a billion CD players had been sold. And of course, the compact disc is pretty much dead as of 2023 as a result of streaming music services. We're covering three films for 1982. The first two are considered science fiction, and the other rewrote the book on action-adventure films. We'll begin with not only the number one movie of 1982, but the top-grossing movie of all time, until Jurassic Park knocked it off its perch 11 years later in 1993. And we covered Jurassic Park in our 1993 show. You should check up on that one. Even today, in 2023, E.T. is still the fourth top-grossing movie of all time, accounting for inflation. E.T., which stands for Extraterrestrial, was produced and directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Melissa Matheson. It tells the story of Elliot, a boy who befriends an extraterrestrial alien dubbed E.T., who was left stranded on Earth. Along with his friends and family, Elliot must find a way to help E.T. get his way back home. E.T. phone home. Quite simply, this movie is one of the most beloved movies in all of Hollywood history, right up there with Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Forrest Gump. I remember seeing it in the theater as a 22-year-old and liking it very much, but not loving it to the degree so many people did back in the early 80s. But the question that begs to be answered, Cliff, is why? Why is this movie so revered and popular? And more importantly, does it hold up 40-some-odd years later? We'll get to that right after we hear a short clip from the film's official trailer. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping you. The secret, the love, the warning, the mystery, the danger, the intrusion, the wonderment, the enchantment. The hope, the connection, has been made. Spielberg claimed shortly after E.T.'s release that the story of Elliot was based on an imaginary friend that he created shortly after his parents' divorce. 
He said, quote, a friend who could be the brother he never had and a father that he didn't feel he had anymore, end quote. And I think that's the brilliance of this story. Spielberg put so much of himself into the creation of this movie, it ended up touching the souls of millions of people who could relate to the story, characters, and setting in deeply profound ways, like myself. Okay, I want to hear this. I was eight years old yes. when E.T. came out, yeah. and my mom took me to see it in yeah. the movie theater. Yeah. Uh, and sorry for those of you who have never seen E.T., but at one point, E.T. dies. Yeah, right? he does come back to life. Right, yeah. but... I don't know this, right? Yeah. So E.T. is dying, yeah. right? And I start crying, yeah. right? And, and, the, my, and my mom is saying uh -oh. to me, it's okay, Cliff. He's not going to die. He won't die. He won't die. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> flatline. E.T. dies. The fucker dies. My mother, it was like her worst parenting moment yeah. of all time. She yeah. still brings it up. How she was trying to be the the hopeful yeah. parent, saying, "Of course, it's a kids' movie. Yeah. Like, he's not going to die." And then, how could he die? And you know, my emotional reaction I had watching it now at age forty nine yeah. was kind of pretty much the same. Not yeah. when he died so much, yeah. but more when at the beginning of the film when he gets left behind. Yeah. I really felt for the poor little guy. Oh, Spielberg is a master at tugging the heartstrings of his, of his audience. What about the historical context of this movie, Ken, relative to the early 1980s? Well, Americans have a tendency, I believe, to glorify the Reagan era as a period of almost 1950s-like bliss and American exceptionalism. And that was certainly the message Reagan himself projected throughout his presidency. However, the early 1980s were filled with a lot of uncertainty and certainly a lot of economic hardship. The country experienced deep recession during this period, largely triggered by high inflation rates, tight monetary policies, and oil price shocks. Reaganomics, the name given to Reagan's economic policies, clearly benefited the wealthy with its trickle-down economic theory, but it left middle and lower-class Americans struggling to keep up. Cold War tensions ratcheted back up with a president who implemented a peace-through-strength policy, resulting in a massive military buildup. America's divorce rate peaked in the early 1980s, resulting in millions of jaded and broken people, especially children, in its wake. And you absolutely see this play out in E.T. The film's focus on a broken family provided a relatable narrative that resonated with many viewers. The film also encapsulated a Reaganistic sense of optimism and hope, which was particularly poignant during a time of economic challenges and global tensions. One element that shows up in a number of Spielberg films, and especially E.T., is a nostalgic escape from the stress and complexities of the real world. E.T. captured the innocence and imagination of child in a way that all adults can relate to. He's a master at that. And you can absolutely see that impact on a number of post-ET films and TV shows, including Goonies, Stand By Me, Back to the Future, The Hunger Games, and Stranger Things. ET signaled the start of a new type of youth cinema, one which is governed foremost by emotions and where action, fantasy, and the otherworldly are seamlessly integrated into the real world. I was surprised, kind of, how well E.T. held up after, pff, since I've seen it, it was easily 35 plus years. I mean, it was, it was a tender story. That mom in it is pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cliff. I didn't notice that when I was eight, but yeah. I noticed it now. Another science fiction film released in 1982 was the film Blade Runner, adapted from the 1969 novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, written by Philip K. Dick 
which, believe it or not, Cliff, I'm going to shock you here. I actually read that book, and I bet you have it. <laughs> I can't believe you actually read a book. Yes. No, I have not read it. I try to stay away from dick novels. <laughs> Blade Runner for me, Cliff, for the last 35 years or so, was always my number one favorite movie of all time. This was an important movie for me. I've seen this movie more than any other movie in my life, probably about 40 times. I am not kidding you when I tell you I've seen this movie about 40 times. And five of those times, I actually went to revival houses to see them on the big screen. Blade Runner bombed at the box office big time in 1982, most likely due to the fact it opened only a week after E.T. However, it has since been recognized as one of the best science fiction films of all time. You're not a science fiction guy, I know, but can't wait to hear your uh, your take on this movie. The film was directed by one of my favorite directors, Ridley Scott. The story is set in a dystopian future, Los Angeles, in the year 2019. A fugitive group of advanced human-like replicants, led by Roy Batty, played marvelously by Rutger Hauer, escape back to Earth in order to extend their lifespan. And it's up to burnt-out cop Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, to hunt them down and exterminate them. I don't think we've ever discussed this film up to now, but before we get into that, let's listen to a clip from the official trailer. I'm too curious to hear your general thoughts about the film. There was an escape in the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I'm going to disappoint you, Ken. I'm going to, and I knew I was going to disappoint you. I knew it. Oh, um, no. It did absolutely nothing for me. I wasn't drawn to the story, nor to any of its characters, though I did like looking at Sean Young. A beautiful woman, yeah. then. In my research for the film, I was surprised to learn there have been seven different versions of Blade Runner as a result of controversial changes requested by studio executives. Have you seen all seven? And given the fact that you've seen this movie so many times, what makes this film so special for you, and why has it become such a cult classic for the weirdos like you? Yeah, yeah. I think I've only seen three of the versions. The most recent, the director's cut, is by far the best. Um, this film, Cliff, encompasses all the things I love in a movie. You know I'm a big film noir fan, so it has elements of that. It, this film has action, violence, exquisite production design, and a deeply provocative premise about what it means to be human in the face of an uncertain future where synthetic humans have pretty much replaced humanity. These are all of the major themes that I still love to see in movies. One of the things I've always loved about the science fiction genre is that although the stories are illustrative about the future, science fiction films actually say more about the present world in which we live and more importantly about how humanity might evolve. When Blade Runner came out in 1982, it was depicting a future only 37 years into the future. And it matters less that we didn't have flying cars or vengeful synthetic robots by 2019. What matters more is that Blade Runner predicted a very grim future, 
where Earth has become a climactic cesspool and those who can afford to leave the planet for an off-world colony do so, leaving behind the dregs of society and corporations who profit off humanity's decline. In many ways, the film's foreboding aesthetic reflects the anxiety of the 80s, a time when urban decay and crime rates were on the rise in many cities. The decaying and densely populated urban landscapes are really a reflection of the impact of consumerism, technology, and overpopulation in the early 80s. How about you, Cliff? What struck you at all as unique about Blade Runner's depiction of the not-too-distant future and what that might have said about the early 80s? As we noted earlier when we covered the most important news stories of 1982, computers were fast becoming the dominant technology worldwide, and where that technology was going and how it might impact humanity was very uncertain. Based on Philip Dick's version in 1969, the year this story was published and 13 years before the film version, humanity was in the midst of replacing itself with synthetic human-like robots who could think and feel very much like real humans. And although we haven't gotten to that point yet in history, we're getting closer. Robots have been doing the jobs of humans for decades, and now with artificial intelligence accelerating by leaps and bounds, it's only a matter of time before replicant robots mimic those depicted in Blade Runner. The film raises serious questions about the ethics of creating artificial life and the consequences of unchecked technological progress. The film's central question of what it means to be human posed through its replicant characters has become a recurring motif in pop culture narratives. TV shows like Westworld and Black Mirror and movies like Ex Mechina and iRobot delve into these similar inquiries where lifelike robots challenge the boundaries of consciousness and identity. I thought that was one of the film's most prescient messages then and given where we are today, it's an idea that resonates all the more with the rapidly changing technological and cultural landscape. The last film from 1982 we need to talk about is Rambo First Blood. Not only was it a massive commercial success, it launched its own franchise with four sequels and it propelled Sylvester Stallone from an underdog boxer to one of Hollywood's leading action heroes. The film also became the first Hollywood blockbuster to be released in China, holding the record for the largest number of tickets sold for an American film in China until 2018. Rambo First Blood told the story of a Vietnam War vet, played by Stallone, who returns from the war only to find himself fighting another battle back in the United States, specifically against the local police force of a fictional town in Washington State, where he struggles to survive a massive manhunt by police and government troops. I remember, Ken, seeing this film for the first time with me and my brother and my cousins and my friends. We were just blown away by it. It this was a film. phenomenon. I mean, Rambo became a national, international phenomenon. I, I, I could not wait for like the police to come after me, and so I could disappear into the woods with my own survival knife and try to fight them all off. And I, we all just prayed for that to happen. Uh, let's listen to a short clip from the film's official trailer. John Rambo, a drifter, just passing through their town. You got some place I can eat around here? There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. They knew he was innocent. I'm starting to dislike you. John Rambo, one man who's been pushed too far. Don't push it, I'll give you a war you won't believe. Despite having practically no actual war scenes, Rambo First Blood might be one of the best movies about the human cost of specifically the Vietnam War. And for me, that was the one aspect of this movie that I thought was the most interesting. I had never seen this movie. 
until watching it for this podcast. Yes, because you were too busy watching Blade Runner 40 freaking times. <laughs> As an action film, I'm sure it was compelling stuff back in 1982, but having seen a ton of action movies since then, it came off sort of over-the-top and certainly melodramatic at times. But the story of Rambo as a broken war vet who fights his own war against fellow Americans who have shunned him and targeted him for execution, that was by far the most compelling element of this movie. I mean, Jesus Christ, Cliff, all he wanted was something to eat. I know, man. And then boom! Massive manhunt, death, destruction. I know, I know, the injustice. We covered two other movies that dealt with war veterans assimilating back to normal life. The 1946 film, The Best Years of Our Lives, which dealt with the post-World War II story, and the 1978 film, The Deer Hunter, which jumped back and forth from the Vietnam War to the protagonists back in the U.S. But Rambo First Blood, I gotta give it credit here, was a radical departure from those stories and most stories about soldiers returning home. Don't you think, Cliff? Ah, most definitely. Uh, and for some context, Post-traumatic stress disorder was formally acknowledged by the American Psychiatric Association in 1980, just two years before the film's release, and eight years after the original book was published. Yeah. And obviously, we see this, because Rambo has these flashback moments yeah. where when they're, they're going to hose him down to clean him when he's at the jail, yeah. uh, or they're going to um, shave him. He flashes back to moments during yeah. the Vietnam War where he was held prisoner. Yeah. Right? And so this idea of the effect war can actually have on a person's brain yeah. was not something that really was explored that much yeah. until a movie like Rambo came along to show us that this guy is not all right and the war has made him not all right. Yeah, the PTSD thing, I think, is an important element. And the fact that science sort of acknowledged this is the reality of what used to be called shell shock and that these soldiers returning um, from Vietnam um, have a legitimate psychological illness from their time in war. I mean, we have fought wars through centuries and centuries, but right. I think PTSD became this sort of legitimized diagnosis that said, hey, man, war doesn't end when the war ends. Right, no, and, and now with post-traumatic stress disorder is so much work has been done on it that they don't just do it with returning warriors. People who suffer trauma in their lives yeah. can suffer post-traumatic stress yes. disorder that has nothing to do with war. Right. But if it's something tra very traumatic that happens... If you're witness to a mass shooting or you are... You can get PTSD. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's listen to one of the more important scenes in the film in which Rambo reveals the causes of his PTSD to his former commanding officer. Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you! And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win! Vietnam War vets were certainly not welcomed back to the States with open arms and ticker tape parades, but that was based more on the fact that by the tail end of the war, there was an overwhelming anti-war sentiment throughout the nation, and it was clear that the once mighty USA had lost a war, and that was something America was never accustomed to, no. losing a war. So Rambo First Blood's commercial success... I argue, perpetuated the myth of the scorned and persecuted Vietnam War veteran. But we also need to acknowledge the fact that Sylvester Stallone, in many ways, his depiction of Rambo really sort of defined a, a new era of action heroes. 
Before we get to the two TV debuts of 1982 that we want to discuss, let's first set up what the state of television was like at that time. The big three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, continued to dominate American television in the early 80s, although their dominance was increasingly challenged by cable TV providers. The average TV viewer now had hundreds of possible channels to watch, an increasing number of them catering to specific areas. But it was the VHS, the video cassette recorder, the VCR that was changing television viewing habits the most. By the end of 1982, less than 5% of American homes owned a VCR, but less than 10 years later, in 1991, that number jumped to almost 80%. People could now record and watch programs at their convenience, leading to the rise of something called time-shifting and the ability to build personal libraries of favorite shows and movies. My favorite show from the 1980s and perhaps my favorite sitcom of all time is Cheers. Oh, it's, it's in my top ten. A seemingly improbable TV success. I mean, it's a sitcom based on a bunch of regulars in a Boston bar very rarely did the setting change. In fact, Cheers was nearly canceled during its first season when it ranked almost last in ratings. I can't believe that. Yeah. However, Cheers eventually became a ratings juggernaut, earning a top 10 rating during eight of its 11 seasons, including one season at number one. I guess it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that the show would find success given who created it and produced it. Glenn and Les Charles had previously written for MASH, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Taxi. They created Cheers along with James Burroughs, one of the most distinguished directors in all of television history. He directed the vast majority of Cheers' 270 episodes. Over the course of 11 seasons, Cheers earned 28 Primetime Emmy Awards from a remarkable 117 nominations. That's impressive. The premise of Cheers couldn't be more simple. A group of Boston locals hang out in a bar owned by Sam Malone, played by Ted Danson, a womanizing former relief pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Cheers also had an exceptional ensemble cast that included such great characters as Diane, Coach, Woody, Frazier, Norm, and of course, Cliff. Oh, there you go, Cliff. I, I now understand why Cheers is one of your favorites of all time. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Cliff and Norm was that when I went to college in 1992, yeah. I ended up rooming with a very heavy set man, at the time anyway, named Norm. Get out. No. He was became my best buddy. Yeah. Right? And so Norm and Cliff, who were always together in the show, were also always together in real oh, life. that's too perfect. And we got into more parties that were closed to like outside people just on the fact that our names were Norman Cliff. Uh, I was Cliff, I talked nonstop, and yeah. Norm was a big hefty beer drinker. <laughs> That's perfect. We couldn't find a promotional clip from the show's first season, but let's listen to a short clip from the show's very first episode. Hey, all right, all right, here's a little known fact. Your smartest animal? Yeah? It's the pig. <laughs> hey, they, they look Dawson. pretty stupid. No, 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 I'm telling you, your average oinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scientists say if a pig had thumbs in a language, he could be trained to do uh, simple manual labor. You mean they'd be part of the workforce? Yeah, yeah. They give you 20, 30 years of loyal service. Then at the retirement dinner, uh, you could eat them. <laughs> 
Cliff, as you noted earlier, the premise and setting of Cheers, on paper at least, was profoundly simple, and yet the show remains one of television history's most beloved series. And I'd like to know your perspective on why that was. But I'm also curious to hear your perspective on the show's setting, a bar which certainly lends itself to drinking and alcoholism, which the show definitely addressed at some point, especially with Fraser's character in season four. I think it was season four. As a recovered drinker, how do you think the series dealt with drinking and alcoholism? <laughs> Poorly. <laughs> Poorly, but comically. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole premise of a reformed alcoholic opening up and running a bar is pretty far-fetched. Yeah. I'm not a bona fide alcoholic, but I've attended my share of AA meetings, and I know a lot of recovering alcoholics. And one of the keys to getting sober and staying that way is removing yourself from situations where alcohol is on the table, so to speak. But I think all the drinking is besides the point. Yeah. Yes, the show takes place in a bar. And yes, lots of drinking occurs. But it's really not a show about alcohol. Right. Instead, it's a show about community, friendship, and how everybody needs a place they can go where everybody knows your name. A place like home. Yeah, that's a good point, Cliff. What about Cheers' influence and legacy on television history, Ken? Well, despite its ridiculous simplicity, the show did spark a quiet revolution in the way TV comedy was produced, with each half-hour episode playing into a soap-style arc of love, death, and bar bets that persisted for 11 seasons. I mean, it was a remarkable run. Here's a quote from an early Cheers writer and producer uh, named Sam Simon. Quote, it was something bigger than a sitcom. It was a sweeping narrative. Nowadays, producers sit down with the network at the beginning of the year and talk about the arc of the show. That's because of Cheers, unquote. Contemporary sitcom writers and showrunners, including folks like Amy Poehler and Mike Shorv, who are the creators of Parks and Rec, Bill Lawrence from Scrubs, Dan Harmon from Community, and David Crane from the show Friends, have all admitted the influence of Cheers in their work. The genius and longevity of Cheers is also attributable to an exceptional ensemble cast chemistry, as I yeah, mentioned uh, earlier. Brilliant ensemble as cast. As I look back on the various standout sitcoms we've covered on Yearview Mirror, the one common element that connects all of them is an extraordinary ensemble cast. The Office, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Seinfeld, Frasier... All of them assembled a group of actors who just gelled in a way that almost made them feel like they were a part of our own lives. I agree. Plus, the writing is just phenomenal. Yeah, it was brilliant. The brain. jokes just never end yeah. in Cheers. I contend the perfect sitcom is one that just makes you laugh and laugh episode after episode, season after season, and that it's so good that when the final episode airs on May 20th, 1993, okay. and a young college boy named Cliff, he cried his freaking eyes oh, out. Oh, wow. Cliff, I gotta be honest, I was never a fan of this next show that we're gonna talk what? about, but it was another TV-beloved series from the 1980s. I never watched a full episode until preparing for this podcast, but if there's one show that perfectly captured the cultural transition from the liberal 70s to the conservative Reagan era of the 80s, it's gotta be Family Ties. The Family sitcom series was created by Gary David Goldberg and it ran for seven seasons. It revolved around the Keaton family, which consisted of two baby boomer parents who are clearly liberal, 
idealistic and former hippies, as well as their three children. Alex, played by Michael J. Fox, a staunch conservative and aspiring capitalist. Mallory, a materialistic and fashion-focused teenager. Played by Justine Bateman. Yeah. Just, oh, so cute. (laughs) (laughs) And Jennifer, the youngest and most down-to-earth member of the family. The series explored the generational and ideological differences between the parents and their children, often using humor to tackle various social and political issues of the time. Let's listen to a couple of clips from the show's first season. Okay, my turn. Four. Income tax you have to pay. Oh, that's not fair. Could I take a do-over? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Whoa! Whoa! Hold the phone! No do-overs. Page four of the rule book says, and I quote... Alex, we're going to let Jennifer take a do-over. Here's the dice, honey. I won't stand for this. (laughs) This is a travesty. This is a sin against capitalism. It should be no surprise that Family Ties was Ronald Reagan's favorite TV show. Reagan, of course, was the U.S. president from 1981 until 1989, pretty much the entire span of the series. Coming off the Carter presidency and more liberal sentiments of the 1970s, Reagan ushered in a wave of conservative ideology that permeated the entire decade. That ideology emphasized limited government intervention in the economy, which he believed would lead to greater economic prosperity and personal freedom. Culturally, he emphasized traditional family values and sought to roll back what he perceived as a moral decline in society. The show flipped the scenario of another family sitcom which ruled the 1970s, All in the Family, which we covered in our 1971 show. In that show, it was the parents who towed a more conservative line set against a younger generation who reflected the liberal hippie-like spirit. In this way, the frequent debates... between bigoted conservative Archie and his liberal son-in-law Michael mirror those between Alex and his father. The political dichotomy was shared at many dinner tables across the country in the 1980s. Was that the case for you, Ken? The single mother that raised me was more of an Eisenhower-era conservative, and I recall her having as much disdain for liberal ideology as I did for conservatism. She and I clearly butted heads over politics and religion, but the dinner table banter wasn't as lighthearted as it was on All in the Family and Family Ties. How about you, Cliff? My parents and I have always seen eye-to-eye on politics, so we never had an All in the Family or Family Ties situation going on in our house. Here's one last question for you, Cliff. Do you think that the conservatism that Alex represents in Family Ties would be the same in the Trump or even post-Trump era? And do you think Alex would have ever voted for Trump? Absolutely not. Okay. Alex P. Keaton's conservatism is barely recognizable to the MAGA mess we got going on these days. Okay. There is no way in hell he would have voted for Trump. Alex P. Keaton had principles. Yeah. These MAGA folks sure as fuck don't. In 1982, the music industry was undergoing a transformative phase marked by technological advancements and changing consumer preferences. As we noted earlier during the historical review part of the show, the rise of compact discs would quickly become the default music format over the course of the 1980s. But it was the burgeoning influence of music videos and MTV which became the most important factor in 1982. MTV launched just one year earlier in 1981 and it would prove to be one of the most prominent ways to promote music and we're going to absolutely see that in a couple of the songs we're featuring for 1982, particularly this one. The number one song released in 1982 
Eye of the Tiger by the group Survivor. The song was written specifically as the theme song for the 1982 film Rocky III, which was released the same day as the song. The song was written by Survivor guitarist Frankie Sullivan and keyboardist Jim Paterik, and it was recorded at the request of Rocky III star, writer, and director Sylvester Stallone. Eye of the Tiger kicks. <coughs> it's timeless. <coughs> Ass. The song spent 15 consecutive weeks in the <coughs> top 10. It was nominated for the 1982 Academy Award for Best Original Song, but was incredibly beat out by Up Where We Belong from the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. Okay, that's just another example of the Oscars <laughs> injustice. Even over 40 years later, this song has retained its popularity with over a billion streams on Spotify. It's just one of those classic 80s songs that just has enough rock, just enough sing-along chorus to make it pop, and just enough grit to make it a must-play before or during a workout, a run, or any challenge that you just need to get pumped up for. I, just, I don't even want to do this podcast anymore. I just want to like throw the computer down, <laughs> smash the mic, bust out through your doors, and just go running through the streets. Right? Punching and swinging and kicking some ass. It's the distinctive sound of hand claps from John Mellencamp's song, Jack and Diane, one of the biggest hits of 1982 and one of Mellencamp's most popular songs. The song came off of Mellencamp's fifth studio album, and it was the record that made him a working class rock icon in the same vein as Bruce Springsteen and John Bon Jovi. Mellencamp first started recording and touring under the name John Cougar in the late 1970s, and then later John Cougar Mellencamp, but it was his record, American Fool, that skyrocketed him to fame and fortune. According to Mellencamp, Jack and Diane was based on the 1962 film Sweet Bird of Youth, which, believe it or not, I've never seen, but uh, now that it was the ins point of inspiration for one of my favorite songs, I'm going to make a point to see that one. It's an odd, kind of shuffling pop ditty with just enough heartland warmth and sincerity, which a lot of people, I guess, back then could relate to, including me. It has this love story narrative to it, which describes the short-lived victories and hard luck defeats of working-class middle America. Kind of reminds me of Billy Joe's Brenda and Eddie from Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, oh, yeah, yeah. or Bon Jovi's Tommy and Gina from Living on a Prayer. Yeah, we, yeah. Rock fans love that whole, re you know, dynamic of, you know, stories about young love, and, and I thought this song did that really, really well. I discovered in my research that Jack and Diane was originally written as an interracial relationship, but Mellencamp's record company successfully pressured him to remove the race reference, something Mellencamp still regrets to this day. And the song's got this classic refrain verse, um, Oh yeah, life goes on, long after the thrill of living is gone. And that line, that line sounds so different at 63 years old than when I first heard it at 22. I hear it now more as a coming to terms with failed expectations and just kind of moving forward. The thrill of living hasn't gone in my life, Cliff. How about you? Absolutely not, though. Unlike your life, Ken, which seems to be like some out of some kind of fairy tale at some time, <laughs> my life doesn't hurt so good as much as I would like it to. Hurt So Good, oh, by the way, so clever. was the other big hit yes. from that album, for those of you who didn't get my reference. It's another great song by a great artist that's near and dear to my heart. I love Mel again. Yeah, me love too. Him. 
I was only eight years old in 1982, and as, as I've confessed in the past, I was never much of a rap hip-hop guy. We covered rap and hip-hop's first big commercial hit for our 1979 show, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. That song was about partying, bragging about rapping skills, and simply having a good time. But the first rap-slash-hip-hop song to tackle the harsh reality of living as a black person in Reagan's America was this song, The Message, by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> The message is widely regarded as the song that catapulted MCs and rappers from the background to the forefront of hip-hop Definitely And it really becomes the moment where I think hip-hop sort of graduates We always, when we talk about hip-hop and rap We always do it as a hip-hop slash rap Right but this is the song where rap becomes its own entity and really takes off. The focus shifted from the grandmaster mixing and scratching to the thoughts and socially conscious lyrics of the MC. It moved rap into a far richer field away from the lighthearted good time and get down lyrics into more powerful social observation with more than a touch of desperation. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep them going under. For bill collectors to ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double digit inflation, can't take the train to the job, there's a strike at the station. The message's lyrics describe the stress of inner city poverty. In the final verses, a child born in the ghetto without prospects in life is lured into a life of crime for which he is jailed and then later commits suicide in his cell. Oh my god, this is a really grim story. The song ends with a brief skit in which the band members are arrested for no clear reason. This was a major departure for rap music and it set up the transition to West Coast gangster rap and inspired artists like Tupac Shakur, KRS-One, Public Enemy, and Mos Def to write more socially conscious lyrics in their songs. And we absolutely need to credit Sylvia Robinson here. She was the first person who funded and produced Rapper's Delight back in 1979. In 1982, she and her record company, Sugar Hill Records, saw an opportunity to take rap somewhere new, and they found it with The Message, both musically audacious and lyrically in your face. The song provides a stark contrast to the predominantly white and blissful messages contained in E.T., Family Ties, Cheers, and Jack and Diane. Public Enemy's Chuck D. said of the song, The Message, quote, It was the first dominant rap group with the most dominant MC saying something that meant something. We arrive at what is the best-selling album of all time. With global sales at over 110 million units, Michael Jackson's Thriller album is by far the best-selling and perhaps most important record released in popular music history. By 1982, Michael Jackson had been performing for 18 years. He and his brothers formed the Jackson 5 when he was only six years old and they secured their first big recording contract with Motown Records in 1968. Even at 10 years old, it was clear Michael Jackson was destined for greatness. Jackson released several solo albums in the first half of the 1970s, and he continued to record and tour with his brothers, but it was the release of his fifth studio album, Off the Wall, in 1979, that established Michael Jackson as the rising king of pop. Three years later, Jackson worked once again with producer Quincy Jones to release Thriller, which quite simply 
changed the trajectory of popular music, the way it sounded, the way it felt, the way it looked, the way it was consumed. It was an album you couldn't classify in any particular genre. It wasn't disco, it wasn't funk, it wasn't R&B, it wasn't rock. It was something actually rather new. This was the sound of a new pop renaissance. It had no borders. It was a sonic carnival perfectly capturing the diversity, fusion, and velocity of this new era. I know it sounds like I'm hyperbolizing here, Cliff. You've called me on this number of times, but Thriller was a pop culture moment that only happens a couple of times over the course of a generation. Thriller was truly a one-of-a-kind musical event. With just nine songs, Jackson created an album that appealed to every kind of music fan, regardless of race, gender, or sexuality. Released late 1982, Thriller was the best-selling album of 1983 and 1984. And for those two years, the songs, videos, imagery, and aftershocks of Thriller were everywhere in pop culture. Everywhere. Thriller was definitely a thriller. Perhaps the most dramatic and immediate impact of Thriller was the integration of Jackson's videos on MTV. For the first two years of MTV's existence, it was dominated by all-white artists. MTV claimed at the time there weren't any black artists that fit into the more rock-oriented style of the channel. It wasn't until the CBS label head, Walter Yetnikoff, stepped in and issued an ultimatum to MTV. If you don't play Jackson's videos, we're going to take off all the other CBS artist videos on your channel. It worked. The first video by a black artist to receive heavy rotation on the network, Billie Jean, opened up the door for other artists of color to be featured on MTV. I'm curious, Cliff, after listening to the album in its entirety for this show, what tracks, for you, still hold up well and which ones do not? The obvious ones are the ones that hold up the best. Billie Jean, Beat It, Wanna Be Starting yeah. Something, yeah. and of course, Thriller. Oh, great. How about you? Beat It was the song that, for me, just blew me away at the most. At 22 years old, I was still primarily a rocker. I always had a love affair for black R&B, but when I heard the crunching rock guitar of Eddie Van Halen's guitar solo in that song set against an undeniably funky beat, man, that was just me all over. Great album. Hey, it's time to reveal our favorite media release of 1982, Blade Runner, no surprise, and Thriller were definitely my favorites that year, but I had to give a shout out to one of my most frequently watched TV shows in the 1980s, and that was Late Night with David Letterman. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. This was the show that started the Late Night franchise on NBC. It came on after The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, so it was definitely for late night TV viewers which I was back then, certainly not a late-night TV viewer today. I like getting into bed at 8.30, 9 o'clock. Me, yeah. Me too. Me <laughs> too. This was the show that upended the late-night talk show format, and Letterman's smart-ass, self-deprecating manner was right up my early 20s alley. Recurring sketches like stupid pet and stupid human tricks, his top 10 lists, great moments in presidential speeches, or Larry Bud Melman appearances <laughs> injected in almost 
carnival sideshow-like appeal. <laughs> oh, I love Larry Bud Melman. <laughs> when Carson retired in 1992 and Letterman wasn't given Carson's slot, Letterman jumped ship and brought his shtick to CBS, renaming it The Late Show with David Letterman, which was also great. But that first 11-year run on NBC was awesome, great television. How about you, Cliff? I, I went with Stephen King's book, Different Seasons. Okay. It's a collection of four non-horror novellas. Okay. And features, in my opinion, some of King's finest work. Okay. You know, King gets a reputation, obviously, because he's written five gazillion horror books right. as being this guy who could only write horror. Yeah. And he is an award-winning author for stuff that was not genre yeah. fiction. Different Seasons contains one of my all-time favorite novellas, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Different Seasons also contains the novella The Body, which was turned into the great movie Stand By Me. Anybody who has ever seen Shawshank Redemption or seen Stand By Me, you must read the fiction they were based on. It's just some awesome stuff by one of America's most famous and, in my opinion, awesome writers. Yeah. And I would also like to give a shout out to Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City off his 1982 Nebraska album. Yeah. Well, that's it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, the films, music, and TV discussed, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. You'll find links to additional readings, Spotify song lists, letterbox film lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like. Next week, we cover the year 2001, and we'll discuss three of the most successful film franchises of all time. Lord of the Rings. Can't wait to talk to you about that one. Fast and Furious, I have no interest in talking about that one. <laughs> and the Harry Potter series. All three of those series released their first film in 2001, Cliff. We'll also discuss the television debuts Scrubs and 24. And for music, it's an all-female lineup. Missy Elliott, Kylie Minogue, Alicia Keys, and Destiny's Child. Oh, the very unique. I don't think we've ever done that before. No, we haven't. Please share your view mirror with Ken and Cliff, with your friends and family, John J. Rambo, Norman Cliff, Alex P. Keaton, his sister Mallory. <laughs> you can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. 